the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Luke. I've quoted this many times, but it's a good thing to remember. John Calvin once said that pride is the pregnant mother of all sins. Because pride, so much of our sinful behavior is launched from the pad of pride. So much about what we get ourselves in trouble concerning has to do with pride and haughtiness and arrogance. And the Bible warns about it. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride is at the root of so many of the issues that plague us in this life. Most of us don't like to think of ourselves as prideful. We see ourselves as humble. But even that lack of self-awareness comes from a deep sinful pride that every human being has. The same pride that tells you not to ask for help and the pride that drives you to do good works in an effort to earn God's favor. In today's message, Pastor Gary will challenge us to examine our hearts for any trace of pride that could hinder our dependence on God. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Luke, chapter 14, with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection. Luke, chapter 13. At the end of chapter 13, we left off at verse 31. Again, much of between chapter 9 and 19 of the Gospel of Luke is uh, unique to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Verse 31, it says, At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place. And go somewhere else, Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox, (laughs) I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. So, you know, some people are, are trying to tell Jesus that Herod wants to kill him, which Herod did want to, he was a part of that whole resistance against Jesus. But Jesus then responds and says, go tell that foxy. It's not a compliment. You know, today we're like, foxy, you know, that's not a compliment in Jesus' day. In Jesus' day, Jews thought of foxes in three ways for you note takers. Number one, the slyest of animals. They're considered the slyest of animals. Number two, the most destructive of animals. And number three, they were a symbol of a worthless and insignificant man. So it was actually an insult to refer to somebody in Jesus' day as a fox. You're basically saying you're sly, you're destructive, and you're worthless. And Jesus has no problem calling out this guy because uh, Herod has 
you know, this evil side to him. It, uh, it was said in history it was better to be one of Herod's pigs than to be a family member because he was more gracious to his own hogs than he was his own family members. He had many of his own family members murdered, trying to preserve his uh, reign on the throne. And uh, so Jesus is like, you know, go tell this guy, listen, this is what I'm up to. I'm driving out demons. I'm healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day, I'll reach my goal. Of course, it's a veiled reference to after three days, he's going to rise from the dead. So he's talking about his ministry, and then ultimately his death, burial, and resurrection. And he says this, he says, in any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem, exclamation mark. I just love this little thing that he says here, because Jesus has a little sass. And it's okay sometimes, in the right context, I suppose, to be a little sassy, because he's being sarcastic, intentionally. He's like, well, you know, I suppose, you know, no prophet can die outside of Jerusalem, because what he's saying is, many prophets have died outside of Jerusalem. Many prophets have been stoned and killed outside of Jerusalem. The irony he's alluding to is that he, the Messiah, who will be rejected by a majority of people in Jesus' day, will in fact die in Jerusalem. Now, he's going to technically die outside the city walls, and that was prophesied in Scripture, and that the cross would be outside of the city walls themselves, but he would still die in Jerusalem. But he's making a statement here like, you know, I suppose no prophet has ever died outside of Jerusalem. How ironic implication, the Son of Man, the Messiah, is going to die inside Jerusalem. Verse 34, now he weeps over Jerusalem that has rejected him. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those sent to you. He says, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, that last phrase there, he's quoting from the book of Psalms, and that phrase will be fulfilled on Palm Sunday. Remember, as Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the week before he's crucified, the people will initially believe and receive him as, you know, what they think is an earthly Messiah. They don't understand the whole kingdom principle, so they're waving the palm branches, they're hailing him as king, and they will shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But for now, Jesus knows, you know, the deal is here that Jerusalem doesn't believe, and he weeps over them. Remember the Gospel of John says that he came among his own, and his own received him not, that they rejected him. They did not believe in him as Savior, as Lord, as Messiah, as God in flesh. And he weeps over Jerusalem. And he says to, you know, speaking about the whole people who have rejected him, oh, that I wish I could gather you under my wings as a hen gathers her chicks. You just kind of get this vision of, you know, a very loving, nurturing, that's what a hen is doing, gathering the chicks, gathering her brood of chicks. He says, I wish I could do that with you, Jerusalem. The love that I have for you, the compassion, the care that I have for you. But you, notice, were not willing. Folks, listen, there is the exercise, the necessity of the exercise of the human will in response to what God initiates. This is not just God only. God is sovereign in all his ways, but salvation is God initiates, God is sovereign, we respond, and the will of man joins the will of God in the salvation experience. It is not half and half, it is both coming together. Tragically, the people of Jerusalem were not willing. They did not exercise their will to believe that Jesus is the Christ, and he laments over this. He says, my heart is for you. 
Oh, that I wish you would turn. I want to gather you as a hand gathers her chicks under her wings. I share with you this story years ago. I was down in D.C. visiting. Actually, I just dropped in with my son Austin on the church that my grandfather had built in 1954 on a Saturday night. I had a Saturday night service and, and just wanted to see what was going on. And it was tragic. There was only probably 12 people there. When my grandfather built the church in the 50s, it had at the height of its day about 400 plus people uh, downtown D.C., right on Calvert Street in Northwest. And, um, and the sad thing is that here's only about a dozen people, and I mentioned this a couple of years ago, so forgive the repetition, but I was like appalled because they're playing as the exit, as the closing song for the worship service, Elton John's Benny and the Jets. Elton John, Benny and the Jets, Benny and the Jets, and everybody's like the 12 people who were there, like rocking it out. It's like, this is ridiculous. And then at the end of the service, the lady pastor gets up and she prays. And at the end, she concludes by praying in the name of God, our mother. And yeah, that's what I said. And, um, so at the end of the service, I had a little chat. <laughs> I was just trying to be friendly. Uh, not. And so I, uh, you know, and so I had this conversation. Actually, it was with her husband. I didn't know that, you know, the two were married and they were co-pastoring the thing. And, I, and I'm like, who's, who's the pastor here? And you know, oh, that's my wife. Oh, well, maybe you should tell her that God's not a mother. Like, what, what are you talking about? She prayed and she closed her prayer and, in the name of God, our mother. And he says, well, listen, you know, God is referred to as a female deity in the Bible. I said, what? And he quotes this part right here. He says, well, God reveals himself as a hen. That's what he said to me. God reveals himself as a hen in the Bible. I said, you've got to be kidding me. I said, you seriously believe that? I said, why do you think there's only 12 people here anymore? Because Ichabod has been written over the door of this church, which means no glory. God has left this place. You're not teaching the Bible. And I turned to my son and I said, we got to go before I do something dangerous. And so we left. But I'm telling you, that, that was just horrible theology. God is not revealing himself here as a female deity. He's revealing the nurturing, caring side of his heart for people who are lost. He uses a comparison of like a hand gathering chicks. Just picture that tenderness. Picture that love. Picture that concern and that care. That's the heart of the Father. But He's God the Father. He's never revealed in Scripture as a female deity. And He cares for us and He loves us and He wants to nurture us and console us and help us. He has a heart for us. And Jesus' heart is broken over the people of Jerusalem who have rejected Him. And he says, as a result, verse 35, he says, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Chapter 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. Isn't that interesting? You know, I mean, they're in the Pharisee's house. They're carefully watching him, not because they want to learn from him or emulate him, but because they... um, They want to somehow discredit him. And it says that there was in front of him at this dinner here at this house, a man suffering from dropsy. And Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. So the Bible here tells us it's a Sabbath, okay? Jewish Sabbath has never changed. It's a Saturday, sundown Friday night to sundown Saturday night. It's the Jewish Sabbath. It's supposed to do no work on the Sabbath. You know, nothing of any kind of effort, work. Don't break a sweat. Don't do anything. 
And Jesus is invited to dinner at the house of a Pharisee. Now, one thing I love about this passage here is that Jesus always associated with everybody. Because imagine this, the very people who were trying to discredit him, antagonize him, and test him, he's going to go to dinner at their house. He's not going to just put up this wall like, you know, I don't associate with you people, I know what you're up to. I mean, he knows what they're up to. But he still is always doing whatever he can to reach anybody and everybody. He goes to the house of this Pharisee, and there's this guy there who is afflicted with what, well, it's a kind of an old term, dropsy. It basically it means edema. There's, it's a swelling of the body. He's retaining fluid. It's a condition that is usually attributed to congestive heart failure. Your heart's not pumping as it needs to, and so slowly you're starting at your legs and your ankles, you build up edema, you build up swelling, you can't get rid of the swelling. And so, you know, picture this man probably in the latter stages of heart failure and swollen and probably painful. And, uh, you know, when edema gets really bad, your skin breaks and it oozes. It's, it's a very, very difficult uh, situation. Today, there's medication to kind of help with congestive heart failure, and so you minimize these kind of symptoms. But back in the day, this is pretty debilitating. And Jesus, knowing it's a Sabbath, says to the Pharisees who are watching him, what do you think? Is it okay to heal on the Sabbath? And they don't say a word. They just stand there saying nothing or sitting there reclining there at dinner, I suppose. And they're not saying anything. So he took hold of the man and healed him and sent him away. I try to just when you'd love to have been there during these kind of scenes where all of a sudden a man probably swollen with fluid building up all of a sudden is just, you know. You know, and all of a sudden his skin returns to as it should be and his heart begins to function as it should. And uh, Jesus sends him away. And then he asks them, look at the next verse, if one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? And they had nothing to say. You know, they know that, that there's no right answer. You can't argue with Jesus. So they just don't say a thing. And Jesus is basically saying, look, you know, if your son falls into a well, you're not going to just, hey, I'll get you out tomorrow. You know, you know you're going to go and you're going to help him out. Or your oxen stumbles in a well, you're going to, even if it's a Sabbath. And what he's saying is that basically there's no wrong day to do a right thing. The Sabbath was intended for man as a benefit. God wants us to rest. He wants one out of seven as a day for us to rest, kind of unplug, kind of, you know, decompress. That's for our benefit. But that doesn't mean that you have to shut down everything and not even do good things. And so he's addressing really more of a problem in that day than it is as much today. I say as much today in terms of some of you have experienced Sabbath kind of rules around your house. But strict Orthodox Jews still practice strict observance of no work. You go to Israel, and we're there always when we go to Israel. We're over a Shabbat. We're over a Sabbath. And they have Shabbat elevators at every hotel. A Shabbat elevator is a hotel that is programmed to open up and close at every floor so that you don't have to press a button. That's work. That's igniting a spark, an electrical spark. That's considered starting a fire. And so even today when you go to Israel, there's Shabbat elevators. When Shabbat starts, when Sabbath starts, sundown Friday night, you go to a hotel, you know, you can either go in and then you wait and it closes and it goes up every floor. If you're like on the eighth floor, it's going to take a long time. So thank God for the heathen elevators, because I take the heathen elevator, go straight up, I'm free, we're under grace, let's go. <laughs> well, it says in verse 7 that when he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. So then, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. 
Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. And then he adds, verse 11, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So he uses this dinner scene at the house of this Pharisee to do a couple of things. First, he's going to heal this guy who has this affliction, this dropsy. So that's done. Now he's going to use the dinner scene as an occasion to teach a principle, and the principle is about pride and humility. And he says, look, when you go to a dinner party, don't just automatically take the best seat, the seat of honor. And the seat of honor in Jesus' day was right up next to the host. And typically it still is today. You go to some, you know, main event and there's some dignitary and you're invited as a guest. And if you're important, you'll be put next to the dignitary. But if you're not, you'll kind of be put at the end of the table. Well, in these days, they didn't have the place marker. So people would just automatically get there and then take the highest uh, seats because they wanted to honor themselves. Jesus says, you know, it's kind of humiliating. If you take the high seat and then somebody comes and... And the dinner guest, the dinner host, says, no, 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 this guy's more important than you, and makes you get up, you're going to be embarrassed. You're going to be embarrassed. And then you have to walk, and everybody's going to be looking at you as you walk to the end of the table. So why not, Jesus says, why not start at the end of the table, and then when the dinner starts, let the dinner host move you up to the head of the table. Isn't that a lot better than if you're embarrassed because you get kicked out of the seat of honor? And Jesus says then, in this way, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The theme of pride versus humility is all through the Bible. There's a lot that the Bible has to say about pride and humility. I've quoted this many times, but it's a good thing to remember. John Calvin once said that pride is the pregnant mother of all sins. Because pride, so much of our sinful behavior is launched from the pad of pride. So much about what we get ourselves in trouble concerning has to do with pride and haughtiness and arrogance. And the Bible warns about it. Proverbs 16, 18 says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. In Galatians 6, 3, If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. In James 4, 6, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So we need to always be pursuing humility. We need to always be praying against pride, examining our own hearts. Is there any pride? Is there any arrogance, Lord? Please show me because I don't want to be a person of pride or arrogance. And pray for humility. And just when you think that you have humility, don't ever tell anybody. Because then you've got to start all over. <laughs> think about it. Verse 12. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so will be repaid. He says, says, that's nice. He's not saying, don't ever do it. He's giving here an analogy. He says, in verse 13, but when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. So now he's, he's going to use this statement here is basically saying, okay, look, don't just always invite family members and neighbors and people that you know well. Invite some people you don't know. Invite the kind of the outcasts, if you will. Invite the crippled, invite the lame, invite the poor, the blind, and then you'll be blessed. They may not ever be able to thank you, repay you, have you over to their house for dinner. But he says, do this because it honors the Lord and you'll be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. But he's going to use that 
to teach now a greater picture about the banquet in heaven. And he goes, he moves into this parable here in verse 15. I want you to see this with me. It's subtitled in my Bible, the parable of the great banquet. So right on the heels of that, he says this in verse 15. When one of those at the table with him heard this, he said to Jesus, blessed is the man who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. Now now that guy, whoever he was, it was true. In Revelation, it talks about the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the bride makes herself ready. We are the bride, the church, and there's going to be this ultimate feast, this consummation, if you will, of the marriage between uh, the bride, the church, and the groom, Jesus, and the wedding supper of the Lamb, and there's going to be a great banquet. And there's going to be eternity after this, and we're going to be in fellowship and at the banquet table of the Lord for and ever and ever. And so this guy's asking this question. He knows something about the future. He knows something about this great banquet. And so Jesus replied, verse 16. I'll just read down through verse 24. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and invited many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field and I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another said... I have just bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. And then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. See, there's that language again. He says, Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there is still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and country lanes and make them come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those men who were invited will get a taste of my banquet. Okay, so real life dinner scene at the house of a Pharisee and Jesus is using the opportunity to heal somebody and to teach. He heals, he teaches on pride versus humility, and now he's going to talk about this great banquet because he's asked a question. And he talks about how, in, this, in parable terms, there's this great banquet. And there's this master of the house, and he sends his servant out to invite certain guests. But unfortunately, the guests make excuses. There are people who will make excuses as to why they don't want to become a Christian, why they don't believe in God, why they don't want to receive Jesus. It's sad, but there are a lot of excuses out there. Not now, you know, maybe later, I don't want to, and, and all this kind of stuff. It's tragic. And Jesus in the parable says that the master said to a servant, well, I want you to go out now and I want you to go instead of the invited guests. They don't want to come. Okay. But I want you to go out and I want you to invite the crippled, the blind, the poor, the lame. Go get them. And in the parable, the servant says, I've done that. There's still room. And then the master told his servant, you go out the country lanes, byways, highways, everywhere, and you compel as many people to come in. Again, this is a picture of heaven, ultimately. And God, the heart of God is go after everybody and anybody. And we as Christians have a wonderful opportunity and a mandate and responsibility to make him known wherever we go, whatever we do, to help people find the truth of Jesus Christ because there's a great banquet and we don't want them to miss it. And we won't be winners of souls until we're first weepers of souls. That's what Charles Spurgeon said. We have to weep for the lost. We have to have a heart for people who don't know Jesus. And then we have to be used by him in whatever way and whatever opportunity to help people understand there's a great eternity that awaits them and a loving father who has a banquet table set. But we are the lame and the crippled. We are the blind. We are the poor. This is us. 
And God has made a way for us to come and feast with Him for all eternity. We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection and that we were able to dig into the Gospel of Luke together. Did you know you could download our mobile app and take Cornerstone Connection with you anywhere you take your phone? That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website, cornerstoneconnection.cc. While you're there, you can also learn about the church behind this ministry. We'd love to meet you at Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. We're meeting weekly in person and online, so please join us for worship and Bible study. You can find all the information you need to connect and get service times at our website. Again, that's cornerstoneconnection.cc. We pray you've been blessed by this teaching today on the life of Jesus. Know that we're praying for you too. Is there anything specific we could lift up to the Lord? Let us know by emailing prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's prayer at cornerstonechapel.net. That's all we have time for today, but join us next time to continue studying Luke right here on Cornerstone Connection. No place to go, but still you know.